All right, we're in Genesis 42 for a couple of minutes before communion. Maybe more than a couple of minutes, if I'm honest. And we are starting in the middle of the story today. We're starting in verse 25, right in the middle of the chapter, right in the middle of this story of Joseph reuniting with the ten brothers that envied him and sold him into slavery 20 years prior. And we know that this is not just a story about Joseph. It's a foreshadowing also of a greater story, the story of Jesus, the gospel. This story of Joseph and his brothers is a picture of us and Jesus, what salvation in Jesus looks like for us today. In our sin, we cast out Jesus. In our sin, we separated ourselves from Jesus. In our sin, we sold him out. For our sin, we crucified him. And yet Jesus, like Joseph and his brothers, Jesus is drawing us back in to himself. He's doing this by various means, and Joseph is sort of mimicking and copying those memes in this story, way before it ever happened with Jesus. It's a type of Christ. It's a foreshadowing of Christ. Last week, we looked at how Joseph brought his brothers to conviction. The brothers, along with everyone else in Canaan, is going to Joseph to buy grain down in Egypt. As they come up to buy that grain, Joseph recognizes them but they don't recognize him. And as soon as he sees them, he keeps his disguise going. He speaks in Egyptian instead of Hebrew to them through a translator, and he speaks roughly to them. He calls them spies. He asks about their family of origin and where they're from, and they say, we're 12 brothers, and one is no more, when really, he's right in front of them. And they say, we have another brother back in Canaan with our father at home. And so Joseph actually imprisons Simeon and says to them, bring back this 11th brother you're talking about, Benjamin, to me, and I'll know that you're honest men. This is kind of where we left off in the story last week, and we talked about how he was doing all of this to bring them to this point of conviction over what they had done to him. He's, he, he's not just messing with them or toying with them, but rather he's trying to prick the heart which is something the Lord does for and with us. He is trying to bring them to conviction over their sin and sinfulness. Now, why is he doing this with his brothers? It's the same reason Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity to us to convict us of our sin and sinfulness because he wants to change them. He wants to save them. He wants to invite his brothers to live with him where it's safe from the famine in Egypt. But he will not if they don't remorse whatsoever over what they've done to him. He loves them and he wants to save them. But they also need to come to a place where they recognize that they need some saving. They need to come to a place where they cry out for mercy. And it's starting to work as Joseph is rough with them and they remember that time When they were rough with someone, they start to put together all that's going on to some degree. And they say, surely all of this is coming upon us because of what we did to our brother 20 years ago, Joseph. And they start to head home with heavy hearts to tell their father about all of this. 
knowing he's going to freak out, and that the road ahead is chaotic, knowing it has something to do with their sin from 20 years ago. And so this week, in the text that Amanda just read for us, what we see is all this chaos and all this fighting and all this fear. What we see is the brother's response to conviction. The Spirit convicts us, and then we have to respond. Here's a question for us, just to get us thinking. How do you respond when Jesus convicts you? What's the response our flesh wants What's the response Jesus wants? I think we learn a lot just looking at the brother's response to Joseph. When it comes to the brother's initial response, it's a lot like our initial response. When it comes to their response to this rough first meeting with Joseph, who they don't even know is Joseph, they think it's just vice Pharaoh, we see that they have the natural response, this wrong response, it's probably, like I said, been our response. It's this futile response. And if I could sum it up, here's what I would say their response to conviction is. And perhaps you can identify with this this morning. They respond with wrestling. They're wrestling with God. They are in this text that we see, this second half of the chapter and story, as they head home to the father to tell him about the rough meeting with Joseph, you will see the family kicking and pulling and pushing and shoving the conviction down, trying to claw themselves out of this confrontation with the Egyptian governor. Yet none of it's going to work because in the end, Joseph has the high ground. Right? He's got more power. He's the better wrestler. If they, and we, should have learned anything from their father, Jacob, who still walks with a limp, you cannot out-wrestle the Lord. Eventually, you will surrender one way or another, so you might as well surrender now. So they wrestle, but they will lose. Now, here's the crazy twist in the story towards the end. Actually, probably more towards chapter 43. They will see that Joseph, this whole time, wasn't wrestling them into defeat. He was wrestling them into victory. He actually, this whole time, isn't wrestling them into his wrath, as they suspect. He's actually wrestling them into relationship. And I know those of you who've wrestled with Jesus have found the same thing. So let's start with this. Why do we wrestle when we feel conviction? Point number one, the reason they wrestle. Why do they wrestle? Why is this all chaotic? Why is, why is all this going on in this text? This whole confrontation with Joseph as they go to buy grain gets them obviously feeling wildly uncomfortable. Conviction is uncomfortable. And because it's uncomfortable, they believe that Joseph is against them. They cannot fathom that Joseph actually might be for them. Right, look at verse 25. Right before Joseph sends them back to Canaan to get Benjamin and then return, look at what we read. Verse 25, it says, Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain and to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This he did for them. Right, so they go to buy grain. You know the story. Joseph calls them spies, says, one of your brothers is staying until you bring Benjamin back so they know you're not spies. But then he did sell them grain. Right, they gave him silver. He gave them some food. 
Then it says, Joseph told his servant, go ahead, fill their backpacks with food and then give them their money back too. This is on the house. It's pro bono. Buy one, get 10. Why? Why is he giving the money back? Because ultimately Joseph is a softy. It says he gave it in the New King James, which I'm reading out of, it says he gave him provisions for the journey. In other words, it's probable that this was all to get them back home comfortably and safely. Whatever it is in the scope of the story, I'll say this. All that he's doing is for them. Everything he's doing is actually for them. But how do they perceive it? Verse 26. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of the sack. In fact, each brother's money was in their sacks. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored. And there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? They stopped for the night, maybe at a Motel 8, because they don't think they got any money. One of them goes to, in essence, fill up for gas, right? Got to give feed to the donkey, opens his wallet, realizes he's got the food for the donkey and his money, And naturally, immediately, his perception is that he's going to be called a thief by a world leader. All the brothers go into panic mode. They say, what is God doing to us? They believe that this episode is taking place because God is against us. After all, 20 years ago, we committed grievous sin. Now, what is God actually doing in all reality? This, you have to zoom out. When it comes to Genesis, sometimes you got to zoom out and see it as a whole book, as after all it is. What God is actually doing is he is keeping his covenant with this family, these 10 brothers. As we read through Genesis, we see a covenant-making God, and now we're seeing a covenant-keeping God. He makes a promise to Abraham that moves on to Isaac, that moves on to their father Jacob, that through this family, these 11 brothers, these 12 brothers, all the world would be blessed, that through them would come a serpent-crushing son who defeats Satan, sin, and death, who saves his people. And through this one son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all families of the earth will be blessed. And that cannot happen if they die in the famine in Canaan. That has to happen through them surviving down in Egypt with Joseph. But to get to Joseph, they have to be willing to repent and accept Joseph. So really, he is doing all of this to keep his promise for them. Not to them. but They perceive it as against them. So do we. When we feel convicted about our sin, we feel like we're losing, but actually conviction is winning. Did you know that? It's an interesting thing. It's a phenomenon, but it's true. When we're convicted of sin, that's actually not God pushing us away. That's actually God drawing us in then why do we feel as if it's against us? Because in our conviction, we get a glimpse of the price of our sin. Let's keep reading verse 29. 
They finally get down to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that had happened, right? So in verse 30, they tell their father that the man spoke roughly to us called us spies. Verse 33, they tell their father that the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, by this I will know you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers here, Simeon, and then look at verse 34. Bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, to me so that I will know you're not spies, but that you are honest men. And I will grant your brother to you that you may trade in the land, that you'll survive the famine, you'll have grain, etc. Now go down to verse 38. Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. And if any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring my gray hair with sorrow down to the grave. Look up at verse 36. I missed this one. My bad, but check this out. You'll see this. Jacob, their father said to them, you've bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Look at what he says. Very interesting. He says, all of this is against me. Jacob hears the story. He hears the price. He hears the cost of going back to Egypt to straighten everything out, to straighten out the relationship with this governor. And he breaks down, bereaved in his heart, because he says, all of this is against me. Life is against me. You guys are against me. God ultimately is against me. Why does he feel like this? Why do the brothers feel like this? The God's against us. They feel like this because they get a glimpse of the cost and it's so high. I don't know if you've noticed the hint at the gospel, but the cost to get things right back in Egypt is an only begotten son. That's the cost. Jacob shouldn't play favorites, but he does. Benjamin is the favored son because in his mind, remember, Jacob thinks Joseph is dead and gone. He doesn't know that the brothers did all this to Joseph 20 years ago. He thinks Joseph was torn up by a wild animal. Benjamin is the only son that he has left with his wife, Rachel, who he truly loves. Unlike the other women he had children with, so this cost is too high for him to bear pain. I think the reason that sometimes... We think God must be against us because sometimes in our conviction, we can see for a moment the true price of sin. And deep down, we simply know we could never pay it. And in our natural mind, without it being renewed by the scriptures, right, in the old man, in the flesh, we cannot imagine a God good enough to pay it all for us. And we definitely, we just can't imagine a God who all he wants in exchange is surrender, so before we're clear on all that, before and when we're not clear on the fact that Jesus really paid it all and that he is for us, just repent and believe. Before we're clear on the goodness of the good news, it just feels bad to be convicted. So we wrestle our way out of conviction and the confrontation of our sin. That's why they wrestle. Now, here's a question. That's why they wrestle. In what way do they wrestle? And why doesn't it work? What ways do we wrestle? And why will it never work? Well, let's, let's give some ways. You can see them plainly in the text. I'll say this for number one. Here's how they wrestle with God, in essence. And really, ultimately, it's not Joseph. It is the Lord. One is they do that by bargaining. Look at verse 37, 42, 37. 
The brothers tell Jacob, we got to bring Benjamin with us if we're ever going to go back and get Simeon and, and get more grain. Jacob is clearly against the plan. Look what crazy Reuben says. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I don't bring him, Benjamin, back to you. Put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. This dude is nuts. Reuben, relax. Take a chill pill, my friend. Your vitamins, your supplements, some B-complex, magnesium. Lowered the blood pressure, Reuben, the firstborn. He is known in the book of Genesis for being the one who's rash and brash. And we can see it as he offers up this solution. He's trying to make this deal with Jacob. He's responding to conviction with this rash, over-the-top commitment. The goal here for Reuben is not to change. It's to stop feeling bad. That's it. The goal is to feel better and to get out from under this feeling that I've done something wrong. He doesn't actually want to change in the future, so he's going to make a bargain. Uh, I wonder if you've ever done this with your conviction. I know I have. I wonder if you've ever done this with God. I remember doing this a lot, particularly as a teenager. I would break a rule, and I would sense that punishment was coming, and I would pray something like this. God, if you help me avoid this punishment, I will never break this certain rule again. And you all know you've prayed that same thing. Don't lie, you're in church. Have you ever done this? You've had this response to conviction. I'll bargain with you, Lord. You know, what's interesting is that this line of thinking, oddly enough, is actually the basis for all world religion. World's religions, the biggest world's religions, they're all on this premise. The idea is that, God, I will make an extreme sacrifice for you now if you will give me favor and life after death later. Well, let's make a bargain. Let's make a deal. It's the wrong response. Why? Well, first of all, you can't keep up your end of the bargain. Have you noticed this? Reuben ultimately has no control at all over Benjamin's safety. And Reuben likely would never actually kill his two children. If anything went south, he'd probably just run. The Bible warns us against making vows to Jesus because we're prone to breaking vows to Jesus. Second, a bargain is not what Jesus is after. He's into paying full price, right? You can tweet that later because it's true. He's not looking for a deal. I mean, think about it this way. Is this what Joseph wants from Reuben? To risk the lives of two of Joseph's nephews? No, Joseph is after the heart of his brothers, not some brash, over-the-top vow. Jesus is after your heart. He's not so much interested in some extreme, one-time religious act because you feel under the gun. So one way we start to wrestle with conviction is we start to bargain with God. Over-the-top activity, over-the-top vow, over-the-top work to ease the conviction off of our shoulders. The second way they wrestle with the Lord is actually the exact opposite. They freeze. It's another way that we wrestle is that instead of doing everything, we do nothing. This is the deer in headlights response to conviction. After Reuben's blow up, Jacob refuses to send Benjamin, so the family just doesn't do anything. They just freeze. Going to chapter 43, look at this in verses 1 through 3 of the next chapter. Now, the famine was severe in the land. 
And it came to pass that when they had eaten up the grain, which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back. Okay, it's time. Buy us some food. We're going to die. Verse 3, but Judah spoke to him saying, the man, that's Joseph, solemnly warned us saying, you will not see my face unless your brother, Benjamin, is with you. So here they are. They're waiting to the last second till all the grain is gone. But yet the condition of acceptance still stands. If you look down in verse 10, it, it kind of emphasizes this idea. It says that they lingered between their first and second visit to Egypt. They're stalling. They are waiting as long as they can. You know who I feel bad for in this text? Simeon, who's back there in an Egyptian jail waiting for these dudes to do something, and they're doing nothing. Sometimes. Not in every situation, admittedly, but sometimes the scriptures call doing nothing the exact same thing as rebellion or wrestling. You could be judged for doing the wrong thing, and the scriptures also talk about being judged for doing nothing. In Jesus' day, John the Baptist preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the Pharisees went out to see him as he's baptizing sinners in the Jordan River. And they're coming out filled with grace and love. And the Pharisees watch him as he preaches sermons. And they walk away and do nothing. You know why? This is what they said. They said, he doesn't eat or drink, at least not anything normal. He's living out there in the woods. He must be possessed by a demon. We don't have to respond. That was the Pharisees. These same folks later saw Jesus teaching and preaching, saw Jesus doing miracles, healing the blind, raising the dead, paralyzed people, going for a jog. After 30 years, they see all this, and they, 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 say, they do nothing in response, some of them. And you know what they said? They said, well, he is eating and drinking with sinners, like in, you know, with the people, so he must be a drunkard and a glutton, so we don't have to respond. And Jesus calls them out for this in Matthew 11. Maybe you've heard this. He says, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We mourned you, and you did not lament. You study this out, and Jesus is saying, ultimately, no response is a response, and it's the wrong response. In fact, he goes on in Matthew 11 to tell them that it would be more tolerable in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, sorry, in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah, than for those cities where Jesus was doing miracles in real time, and they did nothing. Judgment was coming to them for this because ultimately what they were doing is wrestling back the conviction of the Spirit, blaspheming the Spirit. How'd they do it? By standing still. You could wrestle with God by standing still. Is this you? Nothingness might be the preferred wrestling method for some of you or some of your friends or your family members. According to the Census Bureau, this is nothingness is on the rise. Agnosticism, atheism, ultimately all of that is not disbelief. It is resistance. Wrestling God by doing nothing. Move on with life. Wait it out and we'll see if there's life after death. This is never going to work, guys. Why? You can't outweigh Joseph. 
Verse 1 says, they had a severe famine in Canaan. Verse 2, they ate up all the grain. Joseph, he's got all the grain in the world. You can't outweigh Jesus because you are going to die and he will never die again. He's got all the time in the world and at some point in time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He can't do nothing forever. A third way that they wrestle is they try to hide or they wish they could hide rather. Look at verse 6, chapter 43, verse 6, very interesting. Israel, that's Jacob, said, Why'd you deal, I'm talking to his boys, Why'd you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? Why'd you tell him? This is like me at night when I go get ice cream out, but make sure to scoop it so the kids can't see me doing it. Because I know if they see it, there's not going to be any ice cream for tomorrow night. Should hide it. Don't want anybody to know so nobody can expose me. Don't want anyone to know so nobody can take advantage. Right? This is the idea. Jacob is in essence saying, why didn't you hide the fact that you had Benjamin here at home? Or why didn't you lie and say there was no brother here at home? In other words, Jacob thinks that all of this would just go away if he could hide it well enough. But you know why that won't work? They don't know this yet, but that governor dude, that vice pharaoh, already knows about the other brother. It's Joseph. He knows everything about them. He knows where Benjamin's at. He knows where Jacob's at. When it comes to our conviction before God, hiding is not going to work. Just ask Jonah and his pet whale. Here's the truth of the matter, right? At this point in the story, it's not that Joseph knows too much. It's that they know too little. Look at verse 7. They said, Dad, right? The, the reason we told him, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family. Is your dad still alive? Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. Could we have known? Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother, down here. Bring your brother down. But the issue is that they didn't know what Joseph was going to do, and they still don't know what Joseph is going to do. They don't know who this vice pharaoh guy is. The problem is not that he knows too much about them, it's that they know too little about him. They don't know that he actually has good in store for them, that he weeps every 30 seconds when they're around Behind the scenes, he goes and cries for his love for them. That Joseph asked them to bring Benjamin to Egypt because he loves them, not because he hates them. They don't know it's Joseph, so they hide. And the same is true for everyone who wrestles with Jesus and his conviction of them. They think the problem is, oh no, Jesus knows too much about me. And the truth of the matter is that you don't know enough about him. You don't know that he knows all things about you and he loves you. He likes you. He is for you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He has an everlasting love, an overwhelming love, an eternal love, a love that covers a multitude of sins. And it's all for you. I experienced this on a really small scale as a pastor, right? Because I have that little title, people sometimes when they talk to me actually try to 
hold themselves. They, they're trying to act more put together than they really are when they're talking to me sometimes. So they want to come and talk about what's bothering them, but they can't find the courage to tell me their part in the matter or all they're really struggling with. For, and, and they kind of try to, I mean, just a little bit, I can tell. I've learned it over the years, right? They're, they're kind of hiding that from me and acting a little bit better than they, they really are because they're afraid a little bit of what the pastor might think of them in that moment. And what's so funny about all this is that I actually have signed up. I have signed up to know the worst thing about you and still love you. You know, Pastor Josh, he signed up voluntarily. He signed up to know the worst thing about you and love you anyway. That's what we're here to do. Now, here's something interesting. Multiply that by infinity. God the Son, Jesus Christ, as he hung on a Roman cross, signed up to know the worst things about you and love you anyway, and he signed up in blood. What are you trying to hide and why are you trying to hide? It's never going to work because all things are naked and open to the one with whom we have to do. Fourth way they wrestle, performance. Right, so we've got bargain, freeze, hide, Biggie, for most of us in the Bible Belt, we got great food, but we got some bad theology. And we perform. We try to outperform the conviction for God. The idea is we wrestle down our conviction with good performance, assuming that it will appease God. And a little bit of this going on with brother, the brothers and Joseph. Let's look at uh, verse 8. Verse 8 in Judah said to Israel, his father, that's Jacob, he was named Israel, it's interchangeable, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, and we, that we may live and not die, right? So pretty clutch argument, both we, you, our little ones, right? Like, Dad, how about this? You send Benjamin with me, and we all get to do this thing called survive. It's going to be amazing. You'll love it. Verse 9, I myself, Judah says, Judah, I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely now we would have returned the second time. We'd have all the grain we need. So what Judah is doing here is actually much more noble, much better than what Reuben, crazy Reuben, did earlier. Could you imagine being his kids? Like, what? What deal did you just make? No. Sorry, I'm joining the army. I'm out. We'll see you. He's not being rash like Reuben. Benjamin's not like, hey, or I'm sorry, Reuben's not like, uh, it's Judah. Judah's not like, hey, if Benjamin dies, you kill me. Rather, he's saying, Benjamin dies, I'll bear the blame. In other words, Judah here is kind of changing from someone who earlier in Genesis shirked responsibility. Here he's actually taking responsibility. This is actually a really awesome part of the story. It shows that this conviction is working. It shows that all of this is going in a direct, a Godward direction. He's taking responsibility, which is a huge part, by the way, of surrender. Willing to take the blame. Huge part, by the way, of surrender. Ultimately, is what Joseph really wants. In the end, you'll see that what gives his brothers favor in his eyes is Judah and his willingness to take the blame and simply cry out for mercy. But for now, let's keep reading verse 11. Their father said to them, 
If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh. And wait, there's myrrh. Pistachio nuts, almonds. Verse 13, they take double the money. Take your brother also, arise, go back to the man. God, may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother, Benjamin. And if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. So some of this makes total sense and there's nothing wrong with it. Especially because Jacob has no idea what his boys really did. Jacob's like, well, Benjamin might die in Egypt. But if he doesn't go to Egypt, he's going to die here in Canaan. So go. And since you're going to see such a powerful man, an important man, and you want favor with that man, bring him a gift. Give him some of the best things you can get from around here, the things you can only get from around Canaan, these little luxuries, these little specialties. See if that softens his heart towards you. Makes sense on one hand. On the other hand, on a bigger scale, no matter what they bring, it will not cover what they've actually done. They sought to kill Joseph. They threw that dude in a pit and left him for dead until they found a way to profit by selling him into slavery in the prime of his life, in his youth, without remorse. As Cain learned in Genesis 4, your best vegetables are not going to cover it. <laughs> when it comes to your sin, your past, your conviction, are you trying to cover it? You're going to have to let somebody higher up, someone much more powerful and someone much better cover it. You're trying to outperform your conviction, lift it off your shoulders, trying to impress Jesus. If you're trying to impress Jesus, then you can know for sure you're wrestling with Jesus. Because in this relationship, he's the one that's impressive. Amen. I used to do this all the time, especially when I was a new believer, right? Try to pay for my sin by reading the Bible more, sharing my faith more, giving more, praying more. I knew I couldn't pay off my sin to get into the kingdom, but for some reason I thought once I was here, I could add a little bit to the pot, right? Sweeten the deal for Jesus somehow. Make him feel a little better about me as if you could make God love you more. Not even possible. Why do we think this way? It'll never work. One, because you can't pay for sin with performance. If you served a thousand life sentences, it wouldn't undo one gossip sesh. But two, a religious performance isn't what Jesus wants. Your gifts, your sacrifices and offerings aren't even, it's not what he wants. I mean, do you think this is what Joseph wants from his brothers? pistachios, a spice rack, fruitcake. This is like a Christmas gift you get from the neighbors you don't really know. He doesn't want any of this. He doesn't need any of this. He has more than he could ever fathom. What's Joseph want with his brothers? It gets more and more obvious at the end of the story. But I'll let you in early. Right? Spoiler alert. I'll be like the trailer that tells you everything about the movie. Joseph is going to end up being the favored son 
who pays the price so that Benjamin doesn't have to. That's good news. And what he's going to want from them, all he wants from them in response is from the heart to do what he dreams they would do 20 years ago, bow before him. He wants them humble. He wants them to ask for mercy. He wants them to trust him to take care of everything. The famine outside their family and the famine inside their family. Joseph is a foreshadowing of Christ. And today Christ wants the same thing for us. Non-Christians, if you're convinced and convicted of all your sin... You're new to church, new to Christianity. You feel the weight of what you've done. Why wrestle? Why wait? Why hide? Just surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians, if you're convicted about your sin today, you've been to church forever, ins and outs of Christianity. You know them like the back of your hand, yet you feel the weight of something you've done. Why wrestle? Why wait? Why hide? Why bargain? Why perform? Surrender every day to the Lord who bought you. Like we said, what's keeping his brothers in this state of wrestling is that they don't know that this governor guy, who is actually Joseph, is for them and not against them. I mean, it's scary to surrender someone who's big and powerful when you know you deserve death. Like, what's he going to do to me? They're thinking, what's he going to do to us? And do you want to know what the answer is? He's going to invite him in for a meal. Dun, dun, dun. That's it. That's what's waiting for them in the rest of this chapter. Let me close with this thought. Right? We looked at why they wrestle and how they wrestle. Here's why they don't have to wrestle. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. So the men took that present, right? Benjamin. They took double the money in their hand and they went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. So get this, Joseph is glad to see his brothers. Joseph invites them over for a meal. Now, as we continue the story next week, you'll see that after the meal, and even in the meal a little bit, there's another test waiting for them. They're not out of the woods yet. They don't know everything yet. There are some more tests to bring them to full conviction. But this meal tips us off to something in Genesis 43. What's being revealed is how much Joseph is actually for them, not against them. Now, they don't quite get it even yet. They think they're coming to Joseph's house for punishment. Verse 17 and 18 They're trying to explain to the the servant of the house, hey, there was money in our sacks. We didn't take it. Here's double. They're all freaking out. Look at what Joseph Stewart says in verse 23. Joseph Stewart says, peace be to you. Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. This is very fascinating. They just spent months freaking out about that. You ever worry about something and it never happens? Welcome to my life. Right? 
You know, there's actual statistics that say like 80% of what we worry about will never, 90% even, will never happen. There's these, it's just true here. It's very fascinating. They're terrified that this whole money situation was going to do them in. The steward basically says, don't worry about it. And then he releases Simeon back out to them. So they all come together again. Do you see how he's not against them? He's for them. Joseph comes in. They hand him the present that they brought, and he asks about their dad. Is he well? Is he alive? Then Joseph sees Benjamin face to face, his only full-blooded brother, and he has to excuse himself to weep. He wants to keep his disguise, but he is overwhelmed by tears of joy at the sight of them all being in the same room for the first time in 20 years. Some of you know what this is like as your family ages, the kids move out of the house, they go into different places, getting internships all over the country, and then they find a job and a spouse, and they, they're all out of the house, and then like every other Christmas or every third Christmas, they're all back in the same room together, and it's this glorious kind of special moment. That's kind of like what this is for Joseph. This is what's making him cry. Do you see how he is for them, not against them? Here's what I really want you to see. This is where this concept really shines. As they begin to break bread together, Joseph, like a good Egyptian host, tells his brothers where to sit. Look at what happens when he seats them. Look at verse 33. Check this out. This is an unbelievable, incredible verse. And they sat before him. Right? He is seating them. The firstborn, according to his birthright, down to the youngest, according to his youth. And the men looked at astonishment in one another. So as he sits them down, he, Joseph, who they don't know is Joseph, sits them down in perfect order from oldest to youngest. And they get goosebumps and they get chills because there's like a one in a billion chance of that happening. For them, as they know, this is a sign of some sort of divine movement. It's something supernatural. They know now in this astonishment, something, something more than meets the eye is going on here, but they still don't know what it is. They know something is in incredible is happening, but they won't find out for like two chapters. But what is it showing us right now from the outside looking in 4,000 years later? Joseph knows them. He knows them intimately. He knows them perfectly. He knows everything about them, not just their age, but he knows how cruel and how wicked and self-serving that they are. And yet he loves them and wants relationship with them. Look how this chapter ends in verse 34. Then he took servings to them from before him, and Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs, so they drank and were merry with him. Did you see that end of the chapter coming? Did they see that end of the chapter coming? A nice lunch, friendly conversation. The brother they thought was going to be slaughtered is treated like a royalty? Now, we, like I said, something's going on with all of this that's leading to another test. He gives Benjamin five times as much because you'll see soon he's testing them over this whole favored son idea. The test they failed when he was the favored son. He's trying to get them to change. 
But just isn't it interesting how they expect punishment and condemnation and separation, and yet instead they're receiving relationship and reunion and grace. Some of you, in your conviction, you still think that Jesus is out to crush you. When in reality, Jesus was crushed for you. You think that Jesus is out to get you when he's really treating you like a royal son or daughter. Let's see if we can finish the sentence class. The, for the Lord disciplines whom he loves. Joseph doesn't want their bargain. He doesn't want their performance. He is simply getting them to a point where they can stop running and hiding and just surrender. In fact, if they would stand up right here at this lunch and say to this vice pharaoh, it's very nice of you. Um, we don't deserve all this food because 20 years ago, we actually sold one of our brothers into slavery in this country. It's been on our heart lately. We realized we were foolish. We realized we were sinful. We're really sorry about this. But listen, we're not the type of men who deserve to dine with you. Joseph, right there, would reveal himself, embrace them, just like he's going to do in a couple of chapters, and it would all be over. Except for the relationship. That's just beginning. Do you see the parallel for us and Jesus? They have to shift how they perceive this vice Pharaoh. They have to shift how they perceive Jesus. We need to make a shift in how we perceive Jesus. In the heaviness of our conviction, we want to wrestle him because we assume that he is against us. And yet he sits us down at his table. He is the one who knows everything about us. And yet he is for us and he desires relationship and invites us to a meal. Hallelujah. And we're going to take that meal today. Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. We think we're the ones who've got to pay. But here's the core of our Christian faith. In reality, there's another favored son who pays. That's what this meal is all about. And that's what's going to be the application of our message. That we are going to come to the table with our Joseph, Jesus Christ. This is going to be our response. We're going to take this meal in complete surrender. As we pass out the elements, I want you to examine your heart like the scriptures tell us to do. And I want you to see where you might be wrestling. And I want you to confess, repent, and surrender. And this meal, it reminds us of why it's safe, totally safe to do so. Because he is not going to cost you, cause you to pay any of the cost. Jesus paid it all. The blood, the body were already broken. Punishment is over, right? It is finished. All that's left for us is relationship. So as he convicts us, rather than wrestle, we run towards him. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just. Forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, whether that's for the first time in salvation, like the ultimate time of justification, or whether as a Christian, 
We are simply honoring him and worshiping him by saying, I'm not going that direction anymore. You taught me better than that. You're right. I'm wrong. Surrender. And what does he do? Invites us to sit and to be with him. So the ushers, I want you to come up. Everybody needs to take two cups at once. The cups are stacked. One has bread, one has uh, juice. So you'll take two with one hand. If you're a non-Christian, we ask you to let the plate pass until you come to Christ, and we hope that is today. Christians, take this in a spirit right with the Lord, surrendering everything to Him. We're going to pass out the elements, and after a few minutes, we'll take them together. So just hold them, pray, examine. Andrew, come on up. He'll play a little bit while we do this. And um, I'll come back up in just a couple minutes in order to take the elements together to lead us in that time. Jesus, thank you for your table, your supper that reminds us that you paid. Lord, forgive us for when we wrestle, help us to surrender. Lord, what you call sin, we call sin. What you tell us to change, we want to change. Not because we want to make you love us, but because you already love us more than we could ever imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.